Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, June 8th. We begin with a look at the Russian invasion of Ukraine, specifically the intentions of President Vladimir Putin and his perceived power on the world stage. We speak with Professor of Sociology Anton Olyanak on why he believes the Russian leader's success has more to do with luck than competency. Next, we continue our conversation on the conflict in Ukraine with a focus on the countless refugees who have fled the war-torn country. We catch up with Arisia Boychuk, president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, on the steps her organization is taking to welcome displaced citizens to our province. It's been a tough few years for Alberta's ag producers with dry, hot conditions hampering the efforts of farmers. We take a look at how this year's crops are doing and if the weather is setting up the industry for a better harvest this year. We speak with Ralph Wright from the Provincial Department of Agriculture meteorology for his thoughts on the season ahead. And finally, it's our monthly chat with Dr. Axel Morenschlager from the Wilder Institute, Calgary Zoo. This time out, Dr. Morenschlager brings us an update on the continuing conservation project focusing on the endangered burrowing owl. Vladimir Putin has been recognized around the world as a powerful person. He's even held the title of world's most powerful person by Forbes magazine three years in a row. Anton Olenek, a professor of sociology at Memorial University of Newfoundland, joins us to explain how Putin's power might just be luck disguised as a strong military. Good morning to you, Professor. Uh, good morning, Andy. Thank you for having me. For being here. Uh, so Putin is seen as a powerful political figure, but it might just be luck. Can, can you explain this? Yes, uh, and by trying to explain this, uh, I will rely on some concepts in analytical philosophy, because in analytical philosophy, there is an attempt to uh, separate, clearly separate power from luck. Power when someone has resources, and on the basis of these resources can impose his or her will on the other people. Luck, uh, so, sorry, that's, the, the, that's the, uh, the situation of luck. The situation of power is when someone is able to achieve what he or she wants without necessarily having uh, resources and uh, by choosing wise strategy by uh, being able to resist or by being persevere in uh, pursuing his or her goals so essentially uh, that's the difference between luck and power and it can be seen for example in card games someone can have all trump cards and still lose and that would be the case of uh, a potentially lucky person who nevertheless failed to win and on the other hand someone who doesn't have strong cards can still win and that would be the real case of a powerful person yeah, very interesting concept. You know, look at Putin, you look at the, the Russian military. I mean, they seem to have a, a huge arsenal of, of pretty much any and every kind of weaponry and yet are not able to take over and invade, uh, you know, after the invasion of Ukraine and, and, you know, wipe out the Ukrainian people as they assumed they were likely to do. So therein lies the luck part, right? Or, or bad luck in this case. Well, uh, rather bad luck indeed, and uh, what was omitted in all calculus is exactly that uh, factor of, of Ukrainian resistance, because very few people uh, um, outside of Ukraine, they anticipated that Ukrainians would fight so hard, and uh, essentially that what made a main difference or have made difference so far. In, in that in, in that military confrontation but obviously one cannot rely on uh, on uh, that dedication or that perseverance only and uh, essentially for example uh, uh, as uh, 
uh, heavy weaponry started to flow in uh, that uh, essentially supplies also resources. It means complement uh, the dedication to fight resistance with uh, resources needed to win the war. Professor, with power, I, I would think comes a little bit of an ego. And that we have seen uh, since, uh, you know, at the end of February when this conflict uh, did begin, uh, Vladimir Putin saying he was going to, you know, basically take Ukraine. Now he's refocused that, that he has hit so much resistance to really focus and laser in on the eastern section. Do you think this is part of ego saying, oh, no, we're achieving our goal. Eastern sections is what we're interested in, that he's had to adjust and kind of and move his parameters? Uh, well, I would say that uh, Putin's problem is uh, more serious than that, because essentially uh, he probably, obviously he cares about uh, all these uh, perceptions abroad. It means uh, Forbes ra- ranking, Times ranking, and so forth. But uh, he, the source of his power is how its own population perceive him. And uh, his own populations used to see him as someone who is able to achieve whatever he wants. This is probably the first time when it's obvious that he uh, he has not been achieving what he wants, and he needs to reframe to sell it, mostly to internal audience, because otherwise, uh, essentially, the the mere foundation of his power will be uh, will be eroded, and. Um, uh, I'm not saying that he needs to be helped. I, I believe that he needs exactly. We, we need to be help him to uh, to. Uh, we need to help to erode that uh, foundation. But uh, answering your question, I believe that uh, that t- moving target in the war can be explained by the very fact that he needs to present that at least some victory can be produced. At least some, however minor victory is, because otherwise, again, that's the end of his rule. So, you know, when you look towards the future down the road, I mean, obviously we can't predict what's going to happen, but does Putin with his, you know, his his massive belief that, that he should and could overrun a country like this, will he be able to do that with the, the, the Ukrainian people who have been so strong and able to stand up to him? Does eventually the weaponry take over and beat the manpower in this case? Um, well, again, it's difficult uh, indeed to predict because uh, the, the, uh, the, the, there is a factor of nuclear weapons that uh, is still on the table and no one knows whether he will be able to use or he will be uh, trying to use them or not. But what is clear is that um, uh, I don't believe that uh, the, uh, the goal as stated at the start of the war can ever be achieved. Uh, the, the reason is simple, because even if uh, he military can cure the country, he won't be able to rule it. And that was the subject of my other study. It means, well, uh, simply put, uh, the way Ukrainians are used to be governed is not the same as the Russians are used to be governed. So that that ultimate goal is simply, in my view, unachievable. But some minor goals, some uh, because now it's really the question whether Putin would be able to conquer just territory of Donbass, that's still an open question. And um, again, uh, that, that's probably uh, military experts or not necessarily even military experts, someone who is on the ground, who, who sees the Ukrainians over there, fighting Ukrainians over there, who can uh, get a better answer to this question. You mentioned, you know, the arsenal of nuclear weapons at, you know, the fingertips, really, of President Vladimir Putin. I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Does that chance of him using it increase as the war goes on? Is it about the same or or does it diminish of him him potentially using them? 
One of the problems at the start of the war, as we all can remember, is that it was difficult to say whether he was bluffing, uh, saying that I will invade Ukraine, or there is a re- uh, th- there is a good chance that uh, Ukraine will be invaded, or he was serious. And many people believed uh, that he was bluffing. And uh, the same is true about uh, that potential uh, scenario under which uh, nuclear weapons can be used, uh, because uh, he uh, m- made some. Um, Clues, or so he's giving some clues that yes, it's still an option, but at the same time, he's saying that well, we are not going to use it. And um, essentially, it's a psychological question from my point of view because uh, he uh, previously he he said, and he was much quoted in Russia on what he said. He said that uh, probably uh, it's better to, uh, to to die in fight and to go to heaven because we will at least penalize West, and for uh, penalizing the West, we will be sent to heaven. So, I mean, again, it's a rather question to someone who is an expert in uh, psychology. Uh, maybe there is something way wrong with uh, psychology of that political leader who uh, not only declares but sometimes does something that corresponds to that uh, um, highly undesirable scenario. Professor, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your time with us this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. That is Professor Anton Olenek, who's a professor of sociology at Memorial University of Newfoundland. Interesting concept for sure. Very interesting. And as the war in Ukraine continues, Canada working hard to approve emergency travel applications and settle refugees. The Ukrainian-Canadian Congress is one of many groups working to get Ukrainian people settled here in Canada. President of the UCC, Orisia Boychuk, joins us this morning to share how that help is being accomplished. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Appreciate it. Hi, thank you. Happy to be here. Great. Tell us a little bit about your organization, particularly, Orissia. What what exactly do you do? Yeah, so I'm president of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, Alberta Provincial Council. We're an umbrella body for the uh, for the province, and under our um, umbrella organization, there's approximately 60 different organizations, um, Ukrainian organizations that fall under us. And we're a coordinating body. Um, since the war broke out on February 24th, we've been um, heavily engaged in activities to help support with settlement. Um, on the onset of the war, we were involved in loading up uh, planes, a couple of planes with emergency equipment, uh, response equipment to send to Ukraine, and uh, um, uh, and we brought over a load of people as well um, on a plane to help with settlement. And since then, we've been working with various programs to help with the settlement of Ukrainians in Alberta. Um, so our focus has been shifted um uh, specifically to helping with the settlement. We've um, engaged in gift cards because uh, the uh, people arriving, the Ukrainian nationals arriving, are not refugees and they're coming over on temporary uh, visas. And so they're required to really get to work right away, um, and find housing immediately upon landing on their own. And uh, so we've kind of tried to help with some of the bridging of that and um, we've been involved in providing gift cards to them. Uh, We dispersed over $22,000 of gift cards in the last uh, three months 
uh, for them. And we've also been encouraging our organizations across the province to host welcome events, um, to provide information sessions about agencies, about schooling, about healthcare, um, really kind of helping with that coordination piece across the province. Um, we also were very fortunate and had an opportunity to um, to receive a, a donation of a warehouse uh, here in Edmonton uh, through the Boilers Maker Boiler Maker Union 146. They've given us a uh, the warehouse and where we are receiving donations of furniture, and we were we're offering these this furniture across really across the province to anybody who's arriving um, as a Ukrainian national. Um, we've also received a number of other donations that we're coordinating. Um, Joe Fresh has uh, provided new clothing and we're dispersing across the province and seeking uh, transportation donations to actually ship all the clothing out. We've received um, laptops from Capital Power uh, that had donated and we're also uh, distributing those across the province along with TELUS cards. Um, in the future, we're looking to host a, a job fair and an agency fair to help inform our newcomers about the resources that are available to them. Um, uh, we've also set up a, an, at the airport a welcome booth uh, that is run by volunteers mm-hmm. that are greeted on um Pretty much 24/7 at the at the airport, making sure that uh, there's somebody there to to help them navigate and get settled. Um, another program that we're kind of moving forward with is a grant program. So this is what's coming up in in the next little bit is a, a grant program for uh, helping financially assist organizations to help with newcomers settle, pay for registration fees, membership fees, supports, activities, that kind of stuff. So that's kind of what's next on our radar. And yeah. uh, we've been hopping since the war, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, it sounds like you're doing uh, some, some great work there, uh, much more work ahead. And I know that we're going to direct people to ucc.ca to and see what they can do and learn more about your organization. So thank you for your time, Arisia. We have to leave yeah, it for time. Just thank to you. say it's uccab.ca. 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 Thank U-C-C-A-B. you. A-B.ca. Thanks. That's Arisia Boychuk, uh, president of Ukrainian Canadian Congress, the Alberta Provincial Council, joining us this morning. And very few living people have seen southern Alberta as dry as it's been recently. Will this pattern continue? Did the rain we had this week offer a tiny bit of hope for Alberta agriculture? Ralph Wright, who manages Alberta's Climate Information Services, joins us to talk about that this morning and explain. Good morning to you, Ralph. Thanks for being with us. Hello, Sue. How are you doing? Excellent. Thank you. Hey, you know, a a couple of days rain, does it do much to help out our farmers? Well, it absolutely does. Uh, it depends where you are, though, of course. Um, Calgary itself got 30 to 40 millimeters, but if you head uh, east of there, we've got some areas that saw 40 to 50, uh, 50 to 60, and, and some of that heavy rain extended all the way into the Medicine Hat area in the uh, far southeast corner of the province. And in fact, if you go up uh, northwest from Calgary, we've got some areas that had over 70 millimeters. And this is all by weather stations. And if you, uh, there's a report uh, on Twitter that there was over 200 millimeters uh, delivered in 
you know, maybe an hour or so in the county of Vulcan. So there's some pretty intense thunderstorm activity embedded in this widespread general rainfall that, you know, for many uh, probably saved uh, their crops. Wow. I'm wondering because we know if you follow ag and you follow weather patterns, you know the importance of coming off the winter season, snowpack and runoff. How well were we set up in the province you know, moving into the spring season as we get closer to summer, how uh, was our start, if you will? Well, when you say province, that makes it a very complicated situation because uh, this year, I wouldn't say it's unusual, but uh, up in the peace country, we had wetter than normal. We had some areas that had seen uh, once in 50 years a start to spring this wet. And uh, of course, we have most of southern Alberta, particularly south of the Trans-Canada Highway, that year over year, they're about one in 50-year lows. So it was a really mixed bag. And last year, 2021, most of the province suffered a very, very dry growing season. Surprisingly enough, there were very few forest fires because most of that dry was confined to the plains areas. And then as the winter rolled around, we saw pretty much a reversal from about Wetaskiwin North where we started to get into, you know, normal snowpacks, even above normal snowpacks, but that never happened. Uh, pretty much Red Deer South remained exceptionally dry uh, right up until pretty much this weekend. So is there too much rain, Ralph? Is that even a possibility, especially with the way Southern Alberta has been over the past number of years? Yes, too much. You know, the we can call this rain a godsend for many, but for those that got hit by those localized thunderstorms, I, I got a picture that came across my desk of a grain bin that was on a road. So, yeah, it's quite, you know, and so I don't know what kind of damage that's done to the crops. It's probably washed the seeds out of the ground. And uh, so, you know, some some that got too much, yeah, absolutely. There, it, it, there is too much. What needs to be seen weather-wise over the next coming weeks and maybe the next month, month and a half or so to really set the producers up for success? What would you like to see? Well, you know, near normal rainfall would be great. In fact, um, a lot of these areas could withstand below normal rainfall, providing that it comes at the right time and in the right amount. So, you know, we don't want to see one or two millimeters here and there you know, maybe every second, third day, you know, kind of just sort of generally cool, wet weather that really doesn't wet the soil. We want to see 15 millimeters at a time, even five millimeters at a time. So for agriculture, you want to get the soil wet. you got to get the water through the canopy and into the ground. And, and, the, and the soil is really like a bank account for the plants. And the plants uh, in southern Alberta often live kind of rainfall to ra- rainstorm to rainstorm. And once you build up soil moisture reserves, you kind of have a bit of a bank account for them to get through the uh, short duration dry spells. And what's really interesting about Southern Alberta, which sets it apart from the rest of the province, is come, the, uh, come July, it typically gets hot and dry. And May and June are the wettest months of the year, but the taps just suddenly turn off in July on average. I'm not, this isn't a prediction or anything, but you know, your, your hot dry months are ahead of you. So it's important to get some moisture into the soil, get the plants advanced enough, which means we need some heat so that the roots can go deep and uh, weather what's, you know, likely to be the normal dry season there. 
a bank account. Great analogy. I love that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Ralph. You know what? What is it like for farmers these days? Are are we seeing people getting out of the industry? I mean, I, you know, a lot of the times it's uh, generations that will go into the farming world. But are young people still wanting to continue that trend, or are we seeing in Alberta people wanting to get out of it? You know, I don't really know the answer to that. That's you know, I. I track the weather and the weather systems yeah. and the past weather. I don't really track the demographics, but, you know, I have heard that people are selling off their cow herds and, and things like that because the feed is exceptionally expensive mm-hmm. uh, and the pastures haven't been growing well over the last year. So I think, you know, it's quite tough on a lot of producers. It absolutely is. And, mm-hmm. you know, that being said, too, if you go back to about 2015, there's a. It's been relatively dry throughout uh, southern Alberta. In fact, most of the province is in a you know a, a fairly long-term deficit situation with respect to moisture. And now this compares to, you know, what we're used to, which is a funny thing to say too. I mean, what what is normal? I think is the big question. But mm-hmm. from about 1950 to about 1990 we really enjoyed some pretty darn good and and one may argue unusual weather with with respect to moisture. I'm wondering because you do say, you know, you study the weather and the effects, you know, in the province for the producers. Your scope, can we take it beyond our borders and and talk about the challenges Alberta producers and and the ag industry face compared to our neighbours east and west? Is it maybe the most challenging area in the country to farm? Uh, well, Southern Alberta is, uh, you know, it's, it's a desert. There's cactuses out there. There's rattlesnakes and there's black widows. And yeah, I think you can say when you compare us to Saskatchewan, Manitoba, it, it is challenging, but we have to be careful saying that because these are really large areas, mm-hmm. you know, in Alberta, we've got some of the best soils, uh, in the prairies, the, the dark black chernozems are known to be wonderful and they they uh they're you get you get a strip of them in the calgary area and they uh swoop up to red deer and then over to edmonton a nice thin strip and then it fattens out all the way down to winnipeg so it's tough to talk about a whole province but let's focus on southern alberta and again irrigation i mean there is nowhere in canada that has an extensive an irrigation network as uh southern alberta and the reason for that is because it's very dry normally. Well, I'm glad we got a little bit of rain. Let's hope for some more of it. Uh, It's supposed to be getting a little bit more. Hopefully that will help farmers and producers as well as we move forward. Thanks so much for your time this morning, Ralph. Appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Hopefully uh, let's let's see some nice uh, weather for everybody. You bet, for sure. That's a, a great, a great idea. Ralph Wright is the manager of Alberta's Climate Information Service. Your place or mine? That's the question when it comes to owl romance. Hey, once a month we join the Wilder Institute Calgary Zoo's Director of Conservation and Science, Dr. Axel Morenschlager, to talk about all the amazing conservation work that he and his team is involved with around the world. We say good morning to you, Dr. Axel. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thank you. Okay, your place or mine? Burrowing owl romance with limited real estate. Axel, is the burrowing owl the romantic type? Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. They, they check each other out and they, they can find their wild mates. But one of the problems is that burrowing owls are not doing very well. And so it's harder to find a mate. So we kind of step in, actually. 
And what we do is we actually go and we catch the smallest of the litters, which only have about a 3% chance of surviving. We bring them into our care at the Wilder Institute Calgary Zoo. Our animal care veterinary teams take care of them. Then we release them as mated pairs and put them into a little house on the prairie Hmm. where then they have their own young in a head start on life. And so basically that's, that's how we engineer in some ways some romance. But actually we take care of the real estate too. And it's a very crowded housing market right now, as you might have heard. <laughs> so we're, we're sort of building developers and we try to make it really trendy in terms of nice sunlight, good vantage points for fantastic prairie view, a basement. Uh, we make sure there's good drainage around the borough. You know, all these things that Important. we all care about, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And we haven't talked about burrowing owls for a while because for, uh, for a year we had to actually pause some of our activities because of financial impact on us on COVID. So I had a couple quick questions for you just to see how you're doing on your burrowing owl knowledge, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. This, these are true or false. You guys are ready for this type of thing. I know you've been stretching Always. and already. Yeah. So... Um, Burrowing owls uh, use cow poo to farm insects. Is that true? That's true. All day. Is it? Yeah, it is true. Yeah. <laughs> they call them down into the burrows and the, <laughs> then they have insects for a yummy snack that basically use the poo. Sounds delicious. Um, they, they live in the boreal forest, as we know. Is that true or false? That's false. Yeah, I, I'm agree with Andy on that one. Uh, Andy is correct, as always. <laughs> Um, burrowing owls have the populations uh, that are the fastest declining of any of any bird of prey in Canada. That's very true, Axel. I think that's false. Uh, it is true. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can't declining by about, <laughs> Yeah, declining by that's about fifteen percent. Andy was on a on a streak there <laughs> of about two, I think. Mm-hmm. But that's good. And uh, here's a, a redemption chance. So burrowing owls sound like rattlesnakes. Yeah, they do. Yes. Funny, funny noise yeah, they, they make. Do. That's right. They can make that sound with their beak if you actually go up to a burrow, and that's pretty amazing. So actually, it warns off all sorts of potential predators because they—I'll tell you—they just sound just like a rattlesnake. Really, it's super scary. I totally yeah. guessed at that, Axel. Yeah. But that's really neat. I, that's a neat feature. I want to get this in before we let you go, Doctor Axel, because like you say, we have not referenced or talked about these owls in a year. I'm thinking you, you get some great rewards in your job, but patience is key because things in nature and, and making these sorts of changes don't happen overnight. So you must have the patience of a saint. <laughs> well, and we have we, we have exemplary and patient teams because you have to keep working away at it. You have to see what can work to help these endangered species. And, and, in, and then you, you have successes, you know, like uh, the team just released actually 20 owls into the wild uh, about a month ago. And now there are nine... Um, uh, nine pairs that already are sitting on eggs. We're expecting the first eggs to hatch this Saturday, June 11th. And at the same time, we have a whole family history of real estate across generations because we actually have a male and a female that we took care of before that have their young. Um, the uh, the male actually comes from a, comes from a small family with just one sibling before, but the female from a bigger family, and her mom was actually taken care of by ourselves as well. And even the parents of that back in 2018 were sort of saved by our teams, brought into Wild Institute Calgary Zoo, and then released to then give rise to these generations. 
And then talking about patients, one of the things that you hope for is that you hope to actually see them come back from their winter migration because they can go butt down as far as Mexico, right? And we're really excited right now that we have one owl that actually fledged from a pair that we released on CFB Suffield in 2020 is back breeding right now in an artificial burrow that we installed, you know, one of these beautiful places, very highly valuable. Um, and it's a male that we didn't find last year, but he's back this year. And his nest has an almost record-setting 10 eggs in it. Wow. So, you know, don't count them till they hatch, but we're pretty excited. <laughs> you and, should uh, be. Wow, that's, yeah. that is amazing, Axel. You and your team, you do such, it's fascinating work. It's world-renowned, and it's such a pleasure to always chat with you and get updates on these, you know, things that you, you don't see normally or hear normally in the news. So we love getting these updates from you. Well, thank you. It's Graham Dixon McCallum, our vet team, our animal care team, our research team together. You guys make it possible by spreading the word. So thank you for supporting wildlife conservation. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Axel Morenschlager, Wilder Institute, Calgary Zoo's Director of Conservation and Science. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.